Good to be with you guys. Hey, listen, if it's your first time here at the church, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, always love being able to meet our people that are with us for the first time. I'm going to be hanging out right down here after the service. So if you've got a minute or two, make sure you stop by and say hi. As always, a lot of stuff going on here at Illuminate. I want to give a special shout out to the guys from our ministry to men. We had our gathering last, it was like our second big gathering last Thursday night. We asked you guys to sponsor, actually our friends at House of Refuge asked if we would sponsor 15 guys to attend the men's weekend with us that we've got coming up in a few weeks. And I'm super proud of you guys. And I just want to say on behalf of House of Refuge and the guys there, you guys stepped up and you sponsored all 15 of them to join us. So we're going to have over 100 guys with us. If you want more information, obviously we'd love everybody, all the guys from the church to join us for that. You can uh, hit the app or check out our website as well. Also, ladies, for you, we have a church-wide gathering. Uh, for all of the women this Wednesday night. It starts at 7, but I think they have a coffee bar that's going on at 6.30. So again, more information uh, about that on the app and through our website uh, as well. So um, let me just say that the message this morning, as always, is for everybody. But it's especially for those of you who are in high school, college, in that young adult arena, all right? It's for everybody, but especially that group. And the reason why is because we're going to be talking about the call of God on your life. And so to be forewarned is to be forearmed. The message this morning is going to press in on you a little bit. It's going to make you feel a little uncomfortable in the best way possible. It's going to challenge some of your securities and some of your comfort zone. What I've come to learn is that that's where the greatest growth in my life happens, when I'm stretched, when I'm challenged. So here's where we're at. We're in Genesis chapter 12. We're going to get introduced to this guy named Abram. Later, his name will be changed to Abraham, but for now, it's Abram. And this guy's really significant, as we'll see, really significant in the scope of human history, one of the primary players in human history. You'll, you'll discover why here in a moment. Uh, God speaks to him. And he makes him uh, several promises. And these promises turn out to be incredibly relevant for our time today. In fact, uh, I began the series by saying that Genesis contains the word gene, right? And essentially they mean the same thing. And what you have in Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses, it's like the DNA code that unlocks the entire Bible. In other words, if you want to understand how the 66 books of the Bible fit together so beautifully and how every single book points forward to Jesus Christ, then you have to understand what's being said in this chapter. So quick review. Several months ago, we started in Genesis chapter 1. We read that God creates everything. His crown jewel, his greatest act of creation is you. Only humans are created in the image of God. What that means is that God is our pattern. That can't be said for any other creature. It also means that humans have this, this special quality that other creatures don't have. And it makes them not only unique, but it makes them, above all other creatures, valuable. Having God as our pattern. God creates the first humans, Adam and Eve, places them in this beautiful environment, gives them everything they will ever need, lays down just one restriction. Why? Because God wants to have a real relationship with people created in his image. And in order for that to happen, understand, 
there are two primary pillars to any relationship, communication and trust. If you don't have those two, you've got nothing. God communicates. What he communicates is, I want you to trust me. I want you to know that my words are good. They're true. They're right. You can rely on them. My words will give you life. So they give you the ability to choose for yourself whether to trust me or not. Lays down one dietary restriction. Don't eat from this tree. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. And then we get this gnarly creature that enters the scene. And we find out that, that it is Satan personified. And he tells a different story. See, his story is, you eat from that tree, and you will become like God. Ooh, that's tempting. See, the story is, God is withholding something good from you. He doesn't want you to have or be what he is. So, of course, he laid down that restriction. But you know, you can be like God. Go ahead. Trust me rather than him. And they fall for it. Immediately, everything changes. Just the atmosphere immediately gets darker. (laughs) Just the environment is heavy. They realize that they're naked, which is another way of saying their innocence is gone. Immediate consequences fall. Satan is told that the woman will have an offspring that will crush him. And all his works will be put to an end. Time marches on. The sinful human race is on a downward spiral. And God notices. The text says that his heart is grieved. He's saddened. He decides to start over. The earth is filled with violence. It's a merciful act on the part of God. Saves one one man and his family, Noah. A lot of water, a big boat. The flood resides after a year on the boat they step off into a recreated world things start off great because noah builds an altar he worships god which means he ascribes worth to god that's what worship is we're all worshipers or something we all ascribe worth to something he worships god it's great great it's like humanity has learned from past mistakes it's going to be great no It doesn't take long before we see sinful nature to take root. 400 years goes by. Noah had this son named Shem. He was supposed to be this righteous branch. You know, everything was going to be great through this guy. 400 years later, even Shem's own descendants are worshiping idols. You know, it's like, what happened, man? Things got dark quick. And God made this promise that there would be this forthcoming, like, savior or deliverer that would crush the work of Satan. But that doesn't seem like it's going to happen now. It's like that righteous branch from Noah stopped growing. But then God speaks. He makes a calling on this man, Abraham, a calling on his life. But it's darker than you realize because there's this genealogy at the end of chapter 11. And this woman, Sarai, is mentioned, which is super unusual because back in the day, they didn't include women in genealogies unless there was a specific reason. So when we read her name, we're immediately asking the question, well, why is she there? And then it tells you why. Here's what you need to know about Abram's wife, Sarai. She's barren. 
Okay, well, if an offspring of the woman is supposed to come about to conquer the works of Satan once and for all, spoiler alert, that's going to be Jesus. If that one is to come, well, how's it going to happen through Abram with a wife that can't give birth? So the plot's really thick. (laughs) Things seem really desperate. But then God speaks. Now, we know how dark things have become because in chapter 11, verse 27, we read this. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah is Abram's father. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. He had three sons. And then Haran fathered Lot. He's going to come into play here in a little bit. But Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. So here's what's interesting about this. The name Terah literally means moon. And you're like, well, what's so significant about that? Well, Terah is a direct descendant of Noah's righteous son, Shem. So that was the righteous line that was supposed to come about. But now we read about Terah, who comes about 400 years later, and what's happening? Oh, well, the guy's name is Moon. So what? The patron deity in the city of Ur, where he's from, is the moon god. We know that. History tells us that. That's a fact. So now you have this family, supposed to to be this righteous branch. They are pagans. They are worshiping false gods, all right? It doesn't get much worse than this. Seems pretty bleak. But then God speaks, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord speaks to Abram, and he says, literally, get out. (laughs) Leave. Leave your country. Leave the land of Ur. Leave your family, leave your kindred, leave your father's house, go to the land that I will show you. You know, God has this habit of putting us in situations wherein we can't see the specific outcomes, right? God's done this before. It's like he speaks to Noah and he says, hey, um, destroy the earth, not going to give you a lot of details, just start chopping wood, my man. Start chopping wood and building the boat. I'll give you the blueprints, not going to give you the timing exactly, but just get to work, my man. And Noah obeys, not knowing exactly what's going to happen. And so God does the same thing. He says, all right, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to trust me. Leave everything you know behind. Leave your comfort zone, your family. Leave earth. I'm not going to tell you exactly where you're going, but just go forth. Then God makes him these promises. Now, these are important. This is, like I said, this is the interpretive key that unlocks the entire Bible. Watch this. He says, I will make of you a great nation. Great nation is going to come forth from you. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. All right. Let's just lay something to rest right now. So many people are skeptical of the Bible. So many people read these, these, these narratives from the Old Testament and they consider it mythology. No. Uh, You know that three of the world's largest religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, whose name do they hold in the highest regard? Abram, Abraham. Why do you think that is? A few thousand years later, why do you think that's the case? Because God made a promise telling them that's how it's gonna be, right? God says, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. Interesting. See, Abram's gonna have a grandson by the name of Jacob. This guy wrestles with God. Literally, God changes his name. You know what his name becomes? Israel. He is the father of the Israelite nation. Stop doubting the Bible, please. (laughs) All right, stop doubting the Bible. 
What you need to do is you need to read, for, read it yourself, to think critically. And what you find is this mountain of evidence indicating that this book is extraordinary. There's nothing like it. Just fulfilled prophecy alone, God's making these promises. We see these promises come true. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation, bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. In other words, I'm going to bless you so that you, in turn, can be a blessing to others. Same thing is true in your life. We'll talk more about that in a second. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. In other words, God says, and I got your back. And and then he makes this promise. He says, "And, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is huge. We're going to unpack this in a second. Okay, so God is putting a call on Abram's life. What is a calling? A calling is a personal invitation from God to you individually to live for something bigger than yourself. Let me say that again. God's calling on your life is God's personal, personal invitation to you to live for something that is much bigger than yourself. And, and this calling is, is important. It's, it's essential. Uh, and, and it is to you directly. Um, Notice that Abram grew up in a religious family, but he was spiritually dead. And maybe, maybe that's part of your story. Maybe you grew up in a religious family, uh, but you don't know God. Isn't it interesting? Jesus saved some of his harshest words for people who considered themselves ultra-religious and what do he say to them? You don't know God. See, it's an individual call to you. You might say, you know what I love about Illuminate? I'm here because the people are so friendly. That's awesome. We want that. That's not the reason why you come. You might say, I come here to find inspiration. You've heard me say this before. You can find inspiration from Tony Robbins. That's not why you're here. You know why you're here? You are here to meet the creator of the universe personally. That's why you're here. God has a calling on your life. That calling begins with the invitation to know who he is. This is gonna be a faith journey for Abram. Notice notice how gracious God is. He's making the call to the life of a man who is an idolater. This guy's totally unqualified. It's not like God says, once you get your junk together, then you can be on my team. God says, you know, you're pursuing all the wrong things, you're in trouble, and I'm coming to you. And I'm gonna make you an offer, and it's gonna be incredible. And it's, it's really one-dimensional. This is a, a, known as the Abrahamic covenant, but it's one-dimensional because it's really just dependent upon God. That's why there's like no handshake Right? Because as we see as the story unfolds, Abram kind of does some goofy things and uh, doesn't quite keep up his end of the bargain, but God is faithful. In other words, God uses himself as collateral in this agreement, but he's very, he's very, very uh, gracious. But notice also that, that the call of God on your life, uh, it's going to force you to make some really hard decisions because like Abram, you're going to be called out of something. And that something is going to be your comfort zone. Ur was a major city on a major trade route on a major river, the Euphrates. It was a great place to live. Archaeologists tell us that there were parks, 
libraries. Very livable city. And God says, leave it. Oh, and by the way, don't just leave your city. Leave your family. Why would God make this ask? Here's why. He is steeped in an environment, a worldly environment with pulls and attractions that he's gonna have to separate himself from in order to fully follow God. Question. What is it that God is asking you to separate yourself from? What temptation? What relationship? Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like Christians are supposed to be socially isolated. But what temptations is God asking you to separate yourself from so that you can fully follow him? Because there might be something that's just, and even as I say this, something immediately perhaps comes to your mind. Maybe one or two things. What is God asking you? What lies are you believing? What habits are you holding on to? Some of you may be saying, well, does it mean that I have to give up this, this dating relationship? I don't know, maybe. It's, it's going to be something that is holding you back from stepping into what God has for you. So this is not an easy, this is not an easy thing that God is, is asking. So what is Abram gonna do? Well, he listens, uh, he listens and he obeys Kind of, but not fully. Verse 31, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they all go forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. God said, that's the land, that's the promised land, that's where I'm gonna take you. No final destination yet, just head in that direction. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So if you're looking on the map, you've got Canaan, you've got Ur, and Haran is right in the middle. And they hold up halfway. God says, Here's the land, go into it, and they stop short. Why? Well, Canaan's a gnarly place. The Canaanites, you know, they're big, they're bad, they do not like foreigners. And the family says, you know what? Halfway is good. Halfway obedience, you know, that's good. It's like we heard the call and we responded, kind of, sort of, we kind of committed to it. Doesn't that say something? So what happens is, Abram's father, Terah, he dies here, and then God has to speak to him again. Again, literally, God says, Abram, get out. Keep going. You're in this place of comfort with your extended family. I get it. You're old. You're like in your, your retirement age. Family is everything because there is no social security system. There's a huge element of trust here, and there's going to be sacrifice in following God's leading on your life. You might say, I want to be a Christian. I want to follow God. What does this mean for me personally? Do I have to give up this relationship? I don't know. Maybe. Do I have to give up the pursuit of this dream, this hope, maybe this material object that I've, maybe, I don't know. But I can tell you this. If you're telling God, I want to follow you, but it needs to make sense. If you're telling God, I want to follow you, but the timing isn't quite right. If you're telling God, okay, cool. Um, the plan to, that you have doesn't totally fit into my agenda. Let me tell you, God is not waiting for your agenda to change. God wants to own it. Now, at this point, you should be asking, why in the world would I want to do this? 
Why in the world would I want to follow God's call on my life? I'm going to tell you why. Because it will be the most freeing thing you can imagine. Your anxiety, your stress, the drama in your life, it begins to melt away when you step into what God has for you. Will it be easy? No, not always. Will it be fulfilling? Yes. Your life in God's hands. You've heard me say before, the man, the woman of God, who is in the will of God, following the call of God, is invincible until God calls him or her home. There's this spiritual dryness, there's this physical barrenness, and then God speaks. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is going to use this man, Abram, to keep his promise alive. The promise he made when he said, there's going to be a forthcoming individual, the offspring of a woman, who's going to put to death once and for all Satan and his works. He will be the Messiah, the deliverer. So what's really, really cool about how the Bible fits together is that when the New Testament opens, right, you have these gospel writers, gospel meaning good news. Essentially, you've got a collection, a biographical collection of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You know, these are men that had a front row seat to the ministry of Jesus. And so when they sit down, after being with Jesus, they sit down and say, all right, now how are we going to write this? How are we going to start this? How do we, what do we want to tell people? From the very beginning about who Jesus is, what do you think they're going to say? Like, what's the most important thing to lead with? Well, Matthew, in the opening line, opening line of the New Testament, the book of the genealogy, which is another way of saying Genesis, of Jesus Christ. Now, let me drop a little genealogy on you about Jesus. He's the son of David, which is great because Old Testament prophets said that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. So that squares up. That's important. But more so, he's also the son. And the son is like another way of saying descendant. The son of Abraham. Now, if you are a a Jew living in the first century and you want to know about the life of Jesus, you know about all these Old Testament prophecies. You know about what God promised in Genesis. You know about Abraham. You know, you know that what was said to Abram. You need to know that Jesus is from the right line. Now, back in the day, there were genealogical records that could be traced and followed. So if you really wanted to fact check this, you could. You could go back and you could look it up. So he's not making this stuff up. He leads with what you need to know about Jesus is that he's the fulfillment of the promise that God made when God said, Abram, through you, your offspring, every family on earth is going to be blessed. What did Jesus come to do? The rest of the gospel story is that Jesus died to offer everyone forgiveness of sins. How beautiful is that? Blessed to be a blessing. How can I be a blessing to others? First step, you got to get out of your comfort zone. Now, let me say this. Very often, the place where you feel most uncomfortable is the place that you will be most useful. Let me say it again. The place that you feel most uncomfortable is very often the place where you will feel 
most used by God. I'll give you an example of my own life. I've shared this with you before. I'm the last guy that should be speaking to you today. Thanks for laughing. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Some of you know my story. I've shared it before. So when I was a kid, I never wanted to be called on by the teacher. And the reason why is because I have a speech impediment. I have a lisp. What a gnarly, what, how, what an unkind word that is for people that have a lisp. Right? Just, just to admit. Right? And so back in the day, they would lump us, lumped us all together. So we would go behind the orange metal door that was labeled LD, learning disabled. And we would work on keeping our tongues in the back of our mouths so that our tongues wouldn't touch the back of our teeth. We would practice our S's and our C's. Right? And every once in a while, when I get more tired, if I've been speaking a lot, man, it becomes a lot more pronounced. Mo that's why Moses is my man. Because God says, you're going to be my mouthpiece. And Moses is like, nope. <laughs> Wrong guy. Why? Because I am slow of speech. Exactly. Exactly. Because Moses, when you speak on my behalf, people are gonna know that the power is not in you, but through you. Very uncomfortable for me to be in this situation. Get a, say a little prayer to myself when I'm sitting there. One of the guys that mentored me in preaching, he, he, he taught me this. Yeah, it's time before I come up, there's a little just a, hey, step into it. the place where you are most uncomfortable will be the place where you are used most to bless others. Thanks for starting it. You know, you, you've got this little Easter invitation next to you, but you're nervous. You know, like, it's like, what are my friends going to say? What's my family going to say? You won't be a blessing if you remain in your comfort zone. See how it works? You see how it works? See, you've got someone, they need you to be a blessing to them, but you're afraid. Step into it. And watch what God does. You know, isn't it, it's, it's, quite, it's quite beautiful. Um, when Paul talks about Abraham, uh, he talks about him a lot, actually. And uh, he uses him as an example of actually what it means to be a Christian, which is, which is brilliant, because back in the day, in the first century AD, Christianity, the earliest Christians, they were all Jews who recognized Jesus as the Messiah, which makes perfect sense, because you're like, we know our Old Testament, we know the prophecies. Well, what do you know? Jesus fulfilled them. Okay, we believe. And they were kind of hung up on their Jewishness a little bit still. That's why the author of Hebrews, when he writes, he's like, hey, don't give up, don't give up. Jesus is so much better than your high priest. Jesus is so much better than, right? He's always saying, Jesus is better than, Jesus is better. Jesus is like a new temple. He's new and better, right? All new and better. Don't go back to what you knew before. But they were stuck. 
And so you have all these Romans, you have these Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, and the Jews are kind of like, oh, well, maybe. Well, let's do this. You got to become a little Jewish before you become Christian. So, fellas, get yourself circumcised, then you're in. Now, if you're a 40, 50-year-old dude and you're being told that, you're like, well, hold up. <laughs> hold up. And then Paul steps in, the Apostle Paul, and he says, actually, they're wrong. You're not a Jew first, and then you're a Christian. You're not a Roman Christian. You're not a Greek Christian. You're a Christian who happens to be Greek. You're a Christian who happens to be Rome. You're not black, white, or brown first. You're a Christian first. You've taken on this new identity that transcends all other identities. It's not about your gender. It's not about your sexual orientation. It's about God building this new family that the earth has never seen before. That's why the Bible says it's in the city of Antioch. Antioch was a very diverse place. Diverse economically, very diverse racially. And you have all these different people from all these different places coming together. That's why if you look at the names, they represent people from all over. Different ethnicities coming together. And the text says that it was in the city of Antioch that they were first called Christians. You know why? Because there was no word to describe what was happening. All these different people coming together under the banner of Jesus. And they're like, what do we do with this? Well, I don't know. The thing that unites them all is Jesus. They're like little Christ. See, that's new creation language. You're a Christian first, then you're an American. You're a Christian first before anything else. And I'm not saying, I'm not doing away with social constructs, okay? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that your identity in Christ takes precedence. And when that happens, you end up being a blessing to all people. All other identities are subjected to your identity in Christ. So I began by saying that this, this message is for everybody, but it's really for those of you especially who are younger. Because I believe these verses speak to a longing that has been in your heart for a while. And that longing is to live for something greater than yourself and to really make an impact in this world. You know, that is not the question. How do you make an impact that isn't just temporary, but lasts for eternity? So there's been this longing that's on your, your heart, and you want to live this really big life. And you might be thinking, well, I could never live as big a life as Abram. Wrong. Abram was this ordinary guy that became extraordinary because he trusted in what God said. You say, this is too big of a call for someone like me. No. God uses normal, natural people to do the supernatural every day. But you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone. Hey, Jesus is the example in all things. Did Jesus get out of his comfort zone? Uh, yeah. And what happened? He was a blessing to every family on earth. Remember that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where it's like <laughs> people have said, you can't say this. Well, it's in the text. Jesus was anxious. 
okay, there's a lot of stress on the man. He's the only man who's ever lived who knew what it was going to be like to face death by crucifixion, let alone the separation he would experience from his father. All of that's going on. He's in the garden. The text says his sweat became as, whether it's literal or figurative, either way, as drops of blood, tremendous, tremendous stress and anxiety. Why? He's engaging in this conversation that's way out of his comfort zone saying, I don't want to do what I'm being called to do. If there's any other way, let's do that. Hey, God, a plan B would be great right now. There is no plan B. You're going to step into it. And as a result, the blessing is going to be immeasurable. Okay? So what is it for you? Um, Isn't it great? Jesus said, of all the things, before he departed, he says to his disciples, remember my death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we do through communion. This is something that Christians participate in because Jesus commanded us to. But there's a lot there. It's not just what he did for us. It's the example, too. It's the example. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we enter into this time. Give you just a few minutes to... Allow the Spirit of God to speak to you no matter where you're at. And to know that there is something, something greater that God is calling you to. Don't be afraid. When you put your life in God's hands, there is actually no risk. The risk is in not doing it. That's the greater risk. So Father, as we enter into this time of communion, which is really a celebration of who you are and what you've done for us. We also take your example. Lord, at times we need courage. We need conviction. We need a special measure of grace. And we need the comfort of knowing that you are with us as we step into what you have for us. God, I pray that Every member of the Illuminate family would know what it means to be a blessing to others. Father, continue to lead us, continue to speak to us. As we take these moments and reflect upon the verses that explain the significance of Jesus' death, what that means to each one of us. Father, we're grateful. Lead us in this time by your spirit for your glory because of what Jesus did, all for him. And God's people said, amen.